Well, we're working our way through here, uh, 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 through the New Testament book of Acts on Sunday mornings here at Grace. When we first began this book, I asked, uh, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And uh, Bert Wallace, I believe he said Joel. I, I just would have never expected that. But not one person said Acts is my favorite book of the Bible, not one. At this point on our journey through Acts, and the pun is intended, by the way, you would probably feel a little bit different um, about the book of Acts. You may not say it's my favorite book of the Bible, but I'm certain that you have a greater appreciation for the truth that is seen here. That's going to be so in any book that we take time to examine a little more carefully than we typically would. And this historical account of the early church is quite riveting and quite compelling. Uh, one of the many striking features in the book of Acts is the joy that the Apostle Paul and others had uh, in spite of the fact that because of preaching the gospel, they were beaten, persecuted, thrown in jail, but they went away rejoicing. And they were beaten simply for, for sharing the message that God loved us so much that he sent his son to live a life that we could never live keeping all of the law and every point, and then he died as a sacrifice to pay the penalty that had separated, or to pay the penalty for the, for, the, for, the, for the lives and the crimes that we had committed, the sins that we had committed, that separated us from God the Father. That wonderful news had these men and women persecuted at high levels in the early church. And yet... They went away rejoicing, oftentimes rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer for him. Does it discourage you a little bit to look at these lives and say, man, every single time they were persecuted, they just rejoiced. I couldn't do that. I have trouble just dealing with the people at work. I have trouble with my own family. I have trouble in the neighborhood. Well, if you believe that they always rejoiced and praised God in the midst of trials, then it may encourage you to know that not only the ones that we know about through the centuries, but even these early Christians struggled on occasion with discouragement, even depression. And we're going to find Paul in that state this morning. For, for 38 years in the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached at the, at, at, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, uh, the largest building of its kind. It was the first real megachurch in, in, in our modern times, these last three or 400 years. <laughs> 10,000 people would gather to hear him preach. It was said that he preached to over 10 million people in his lifetime. The Metropolitan Church had been initially called the New Park Street Chapel, but when the building was built, people flocked there to hear him. At, at, at one point in his ministry, because of depression, he was out of the ministry for six months, had to leave the country to recover. He said when he was fighting depression that he had trouble getting out of bed. And he likened depression to fighting the mist. It's everywhere, but you can't hit it, he would say. Winston Churchill put it this way, the dark dog is upon me. Many of you have been blessed by Mark Driscoll's ministry, the lead pastor of Mars Hill 
church in Seattle. He talks about periods in which the fog rolls in and he feels totally alone, though millions of believers worldwide look to him for encouragement and for persistence, look for encouragement to persist in the faith when life gets difficult. He, he speaks of the emotional strain of ministry where because of his commitment to the gospel, people are going to be upset with him and he knows that it's never going to change. And you know what? That's true about all of us. Any one of us who is committed to the gospel and to share in the gospel with other people are going to have those who are upset with us, especially Satan. Carrie Lewis recently um, agreed to lead our women's ministry here at Grace Community Church. You'll see some notice in the bulletin. The day after she committed to doing that, physical problems that had been at bay in remission for years came back on her. It's just the way it is. Gospel ministry, a gospel-centered life is going to bring about opposition and that opposition is going to cause some discouragement and that's where we find the apostle Paul this morning in our text in Acts 18 he's alone and discouraged that might not be as evident to some of you as it is to others but once you look just a little bit below the surface you see it it's very clear that he's there this morning um, Tim Keller is going to help us look a little bit below the surface and see the raw emotions of the Apostle Paul, although lots of commentators find the exact same thing in this particular text. As we've worked our way through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, I've, I've avoided this material uh, from Tim Keller. He's got a study on the book of Acts because our home groups are doing that. At, at the very least, the leaders in the group and some of those others of you who have ordered the whole uh, study know just how wonderful and helpful his various insights have been going through the book of, of Acts. This morning I'm going to make an exception and follow some of the outline that he uses for the first portion of 1 Corinthians 18, although that's coming at the end of the message, where he rightly, I am convinced, sees a lonely and a discouraged apostle. Just to set the stage for the, for the reading of the text, you'll recall last week that, that Paul was in Athens waiting for Timothy and Silas. They had stayed in Philippi. He sent word, get down here, boys. I, I need you down here. You can see the discouragement already coming upon him. Then he preaches at the Areopagus before this council of probably the smartest people of the entire world. And he did quite well, but they mocked him. They, they, they told him to, to get out of there. They had called him a seed picker. In Athens. And so, instead of waiting for Timothy and Silas, he just hit the road and he heads out to Corinth. That's where we pick up our text in Acts 18 1. We're going to pray and then we're going to read the text deliberately so that we can pick up on a number of important truths. It's just there's no way I would love to have spent the whole time this morning just talking about this, this theme of ministry discouragement and, and divine encouragement. And by the way, when I say ministry um, in discouragement, I'm talking about anybody. I'm not just talking about full-time ministry workers, church workers or, or camp workers or 
or, or student ministry workers. I'm talking about anybody who, who is willing to share the gospel. On a, if, if, if your life is, is centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it's around Jesus and his cross and you're sharing this word, it's going to be tough for all of us. And, and as much as I would have liked to have spent the whole time there, there's just too much. If we're going to get a thorough understanding of Acts, it's important to pick, up, pick some of this stuff up as we go along. So we're going to pray and then we'll, then we'll remain seated for the reading because it's going to take us a little while to get through it. Let's pray. Father, we have seen, Lord, it's always true. But oh, how true it is. In, in the book of Acts, that your word is alive. And while this is a historical account of what happened in the early days about the way the Spirit of God moved on the earth, and he used men and women just like us to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, we find in this account truth that is very much alive. We pray that our hearts would be open to the living word on this day and that you might fill us full, help us to apply what we need to, especially those, Lord, who would be a little discouraged, a little down today. We pray your great blessings on them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we begin our reading, let me encourage you to turn to the back of your Bibles, to the, to the, to the maps. Maybe you've done some of this as we've gone through, but the, the words of the, the text are going to be up here on the screen, but go to the back of your, your map and, and look for Paul's second missionary journey. Actually, he begins his third missionary journey in, in this text today. But just to get an idea of where he is, some, he's going to be somewhere in the middle of the map. Uh, if you will, uh, he's in Greece, in Philippi, and, and excuse me, in Athens and in uh, Corinth, as we're there. But just look at some of those other places. You see the provinces there, and the and the major cities in the in these provinces where Paul went to. You see the the places in Bithynia and Asia where he wanted to go, and the Lord said, "No, you can't go there." And and eventually he was led over to Macedonia and Philippi, and now he's all the way down in Achaia or modern-day Greece with Athens and Corinth. So that's where we begin in verse 1. After this, after all that that we talked about, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, there's a quick word about Corinth. Corinth was a huge city about 45 miles east of Athens. Uh, while Athens was a city of only about 10,000 people, Corinth the capital of the province of Achaia boasted close to three-quarters of a million residents. That was a huge, huge city in ancient times. Athens was extremely influential as an intellectual city. Corinth was extremely influential in commerce and trade. And, and it was also, at the same time, an extremely wicked city with a great deal of corrupt corruption, and sexual lewdness that was mixed in with the religion. Paul was walking into a very dark city, and as he got there, he found a ray of light. Verse 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, 
recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Aquila and Priscilla just kind of flows off the tongue, you know. And I know all week long you'll be walking around saying, Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla. They were good medicine for a weary servant of the Lord. They were Jews who were originally from Pontus, but they had moved to Rome where they plied their trade, their tent-making trade, their craft. And, and in Rome, the church had already been established there, even though Paul hadn't been there. In Rome... <clears throat> The Jews persecuted the Christians. Imagine that. And Emperor Claudius, it was right under his nose. And he said, take that fight somewhere else. We don't want it in Rome. And he pushed all the Jews out. Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila certainly was a, was a Jew, and I would imagine Priscilla as well. They were Jews who had most likely converted to Jesus, but they had to go to Corinth. And, and, and the Lord was saying... Just like Joseph and Mary had to go to Nazareth and it looked like it was all the emperor's doings, God was moving everybody just exactly where he wanted them. And there they were in Corinth when Paul arrived. So Paul connected with them because they were Jewish, they were Christians, and they had the same profession or they practiced the same trade. And so Paul, who was out of money by this point, had to work in order to live. Now, you don't think about how Paul was supported in all of this. All of this. It's not like he had family riches. If he had, they had already been expended. There's indication that, that women, very wealthy women, supported a lot of Paul's ministry the same way that very wealthy women had supported Jesus' ministry uh, when he was in Galilee. So, but now Paul is being forced to work to live, to, to, to be able to just put the bread on the table. And, and, it, and it's distracted him a little bit from his, from his service. But we'll talk about that in just a moment. So, <coughs> verse 4. <coughs> and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Sounds familiar. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, that also sounds familiar, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It's the same thing as taking your, your feet off and knocking the dust off of them. He's basically saying, not my problem. You're not my problem. He walked away saying, you have refused to hear the truth that will save you, and I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Same strategy, going to the Gentiles, but more deliberate in setting up shop in a Gentile home. Now, it's, I'll mention again later for sure, Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy had... From Philippians 4, 2 Corinthians 11, we get the sense that they brought a gift to Paul. And now he's uh, probably con uh, 
finished up with his tent-making work, and he's just working full-time. But he set up shop in a Gentile home very close to the synagogue. Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Now, this is amazing. The leader of the, of the um, synagogue has believed in Jesus. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. This is just one indication that Paul was really down, really low at this point. And he stayed a year and six months beyond what he's already been in in town, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Same old pattern. The Jews turned Paul into the government, Gentile government officials, and, and hope that he's beaten, thrown in jail, run out of town, whatever. Let's, let's see if the results are the same. But when Paul was about to open his mouth in defense, Gallio, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Now, (laughs) this is quite significant. Uh, Paul was about to defend himself, but, but Galileo stepped in and said to the Jews, Give me a break. You are trying to... Have this man accused of breaking Roman law, or you're accusing him of breaking Roman law, but it's a matter of your own religion. You want to use me to, to have him beaten or to, or to stop saying what he's saying, and I'm not going to punish him. I'm not going to satisfy your religious passions by punishing this man. He's done nothing wrong. In addition to rescuing Paul, Galileo legalized, in essence, at least in that region, Christianity, for the moment. Didn't last. But for the moment, Paul had free reign. And then look what happens next. And they, this is almost certainly got to be a Gentile mob who was around. You know, there are certain people that hang around the courthouse. Um, it's a- activity is there. It's kind of like in a rural county when, you know, they call 911 Half the county shows up, and there's far more danger in the people getting to the scene of the accident than there is at the accident. Well, here's people just there. They're around to see what's going on, and the Gentiles rarely passed up an opportunity to persecute Jews. Anti-Semitism was just then, as it is now, very strong. And they all see Sosthenes... The ruler of the synagogue, they had to get a new ruler of the synagogue because Crispus had had believed, and he's a Christian now. And they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. This was justice as far as he was concerned. You wanted this done to Paul? We'll have it done to you because you're, 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 
Your accusations have no validity at all. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. He's going home. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Now, just a word here. This is Paul, remember, who is constantly arguing with legalizers, those who would say that in order to be saved, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to keep the law. But remember, about three or four weeks ago, we talked about the, the, the ways that a, a believer who is free in Christ is also free to, to follow certain religious practices so as not to offend other people, as long as you're not doing it for acceptance for the Lord to say, okay, I approve of you, because morality will get nobody into heaven. The most moral person in the world is hopeless and helpless without Jesus and a recognition of who we are apart from Him. But once we're saved, we, can, we are free to restrict our own behavior in order to minister to those who need to understand their need of Jesus. And so Paul uh, was finishing, most likely, a temporary Nazarite vow, probably in Corinth where he had he was so discouraged, he said, Lord, I'm just giving my life over to you. I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm not going to drink from the fruit of the vine. All of those things that are a part of the Nazarite vow. And it was a sign of his commitment to God. And now at the end of his vow, according to custom, he shaved his head. This is very much akin to our commitments of sacrifice during Lent. Many of you have given up. How many of you are participating in Lent in one way or another? All right. About a handful of you. Um, You've given up chocolate. You've given up um, coffee or television or Facebook. I hear one account. Uh, I personally have given up Brussels sprouts for um, Lent and a few other vegetables as well. But, you know, when we do that, when when we fast... Just as, and when we give up something for Lent, just as when we fast, we're, we're reminding ourselves of our priorities. <clears throat> and much as when we fast, there's a significant focus on repentance. This is a time of repentance, this time of Lent. We need to be constantly bringing ourselves before the Lord and saying, I recognize I am exactly who you say I am in your word, and I repent of this, I repent of that. But don't worry about that. It's not a a time of morbidity, of of, of misery. Repentance, true biblical repentance brings great joy in our hearts. (coughs) So that's basically what was happening. Paul's vow was an expression of his love for God, not an attempt to be justified by his works. And his actions seemed to have opened a door for him In Ephesus, look at the reception at the synagogue of that city. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Now, this just doesn't happen usually with Paul. We really want to hear from you. Please stay a little bit longer. He declined. Before taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. Now, pay attention, because we're going to cover a lot of ground in the next verse. He's going, Paul's going to travel quite a distance. And when he had landed at Caesarea on the coast of Israel, 
He went up to, he went up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem because of the mountainous um, location of Jerusalem. So they always see that over and over, go up to Jerusalem in, in Scripture. And greeted the church. He's talking about the church, the church at Jerusalem. When he went up and greeted the church, we have to read into that. Early readers didn't have to read into that at all. They knew exactly what he was saying. And then, after being in Jerusalem for a while, went down to Antioch. Even though he was going north, he went down the mountain to Antioch, back to where his missionary journeys always begin. After spending some time there, he departed on his third missionary journey and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. We, were, um, we had an elders meeting on on Thursday, we, we, we met for dinner, and uh, we were talking about this, this particular chapter, and Jim McLaughlin said, you know, I was reading through there, and I said, wait a minute, Paul's already on his third journey, I, I missed it, I have, he had to go back and read it again, that's what has happened here, He's, it's happened so quickly, at least in, in, in the recounting of it, that he's all of a sudden back, and, and for the third time, he's going to those churches in Galatia. Lystra and Derby and all of those churches. Look at it on your map, if you will. That's where he went, and, and then to Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And next week, we're going to follow him to Ephesus. Actually, um, he's going to be doing some more traveling in this chapter. The last uh, few verses here are going to introduce us to Apollos, who becomes quite an effective preacher in the early church. This was a very learned man, Apollos was, and he was a very gifted, eloquent man. It's very important in the church, but he didn't know quite as much as he thought he knew. And so we will see uh, today Aquila and Priscilla taking him and helping him to understand the, 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 the teaching about Christ more fully. He's very much like a group that we're going to encounter next week. Sean will be preaching next week, and he's going to talk about this group that Paul encounters who were disciples of John, had not heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit all the baptism, only baptism they knew was the one of John the Baptist, which was a, a baptism of repentance. And so they didn't know about Christ, and, and we seem to find Apollos in the same place. They hadn't been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And rather than taking the time to go into detail now, uh, Sean will be hitting that next week uh, in the message. And if, if there's anything that's unclear in your mind now, I'm certain it'll be cleared up. Later, So we'll read these verses without further comment. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. I have to say this. He, he, he spoke things concerning Jesus truthfully about his life, but he didn't understand the death, burial, and resurrection and all of its implications. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. 
When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that Christ, the Christ, was Jesus. That's the second time we've encountered that. The Christ was Jesus. Same thing as saying Jesus was and is the Christ. Now for these last few moments, uh, let's just turn our attention back to the first part of the chapter where we are going to encounter a discouraged minister. But also, we will see a God of comfort and encouragement. You know, when we, we think of discouragement, we sometimes think that we should be above it. We chide ourselves when we feel down and discouraged. And we say things that are very true. Things like, you know, when you're, when you're doubting, you're not trusting. When you're worried, you're not trusting. That's true. Uh, when you're trusting, you're not doubting. When you're trusting, you're not, you're not uh, anxious. I, I'm not 100% sure that's true. You know, uh, if, if, if anxio- anxiety is your full focus, then it's going to be difficult to say that you're trusting. But when you're trusting, look, faith is all about believing something that, that we cannot see. And, and, and in some ways... Faith doesn't make sense. Now, of course it does to those of us who believe. It doesn't make sense to the world, though, that we believe in something that we can't see when, it, when life just tells you to go another way, another direction. So should Christians be people who were discouraged? I mean, isn't that a sin? I mean, the people of Japan, we get their discouragement right now. Not only have they faced one crisis after another, but less than one half of a percent of the people believe in Jesus. Where is the hope in Japan other than in the human spirit? And that hope gets old fairly quickly in the midst of crises. In addition, when you pray for the people of Japan for their safety and recovery. Pray also that God will reveal himself to a people who were in need of him long before they were aware of their need. This could be a grand opportunity. Actually, when you hear the missionaries in Indonesia, that area where the tsunami came in quite a few years ago really opened the door to the gospel in that area. It had been completely shut. And God opened the door the doors for the gospel. So let's pray for that as well. We, we get that who, for those who, who don't have hope of eternal life in Jesus to be discouraged. But what about someone like Paul who had seen great success in his ministry? Well, in the first place, I, I think probably all of us have experienced that letdown of emotion after great success in whatever we're talking about. You just can't wait to finish this exam. You know, Allison took a praxis exam last week, teacher's exam. Some of you have taken uh, the LSAT and the, um, and the MCAT. and all, I'm probably saying those wrong, but medic- medicine and, and, and lawyer. If you've if you got to pass a particular test and you say, oh, no, or the boards or whatever, and you say, I'm dreading this, and when it's over, oh, I'm so glad it's over. Why do I feel so depressed? It's just the way it is. Whenever there are great successes in life, a lot of times there's great depression after it. And, and, and not only that, Paul's success that God had allowed him in his ministry came 
at a great price. He was persecuted mercilessly. And he was often mocked when he wasn't beaten. He was so apparently so discouraged in Athens that he didn't even wait for Timothy and Silas before he left for Corinth. It must have been a difficult walk. Nobody likes being called a seed picker. Hayseed, basically they had said. Once in Corinth, it was a blessing to find Aquila and Priscilla, especially since they were believers, we are almost certain, and they had the same professional trade as Paul. And that was able to pay the bills and and to have some encouragement as well. But while Paul was making tents, he wasn't ministering full-time as he had in other cities. Now, this was God's will, clearly. And in addition to allowing him to catch up emotionally a little bit, it also enabled him to look back to the Corinthians later and says, there's no way you can accuse me of doing what I did for gain. Don't you remember? I had a job when I was in Corinth. So don't be accusing me of taking advantage of you financially. At the time, though, it had to be discouraging for Paul. I mean, can you imagine? He's probably thinking, what, has the Lord withdrawn his hand of favor on me? I mean, I've I've seen all this success in all these places. Nothing in Athens almost. Just a little bit. Just a handful of people saved. And I come to Corinth, and here I am making tents. I can't even preach. No money. I'm out of money. Has God withdrawn his hand of blessing? We're told in verse 4, though, that neither Paul's personal discouragement nor his financial challenges kept him from going to the synagogue to preach. It's even more remarkable when you recognize how afraid Paul was. We know that because in addition to verse 9 of our text, telling us that the Lord encouraged him in a vision not to be afraid, Paul told the Corinthians when he wrote them years later, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 2 and 3, that he had come to them from Athens with fear and trembling. It's not that he was afraid of failure. He was probably more afraid of success. You know the pattern? He goes in, he preaches. There are converts. God blesses him with converts. And then he's beaten within an inch of his life. But the Lord assured Paul, not this time. I have many people in this city and you are the one to preach to them. Just be faithful. Paul, I'm going to protect you. You get the sense that Paul was so discouraged. Even after his friends got there and they brought the money from the churches in Macedonia and Philippi particularly. That he was ready to just give up and quit. Paul's response indicates that he took courage from the Lord and continued his service. So let's bring this time to a conclusion by looking at two things that Tim Keller gleaned from the text. I'm just going to put these points up there. We're going to talk about how God encourages us in discouragement and the direction that he gives us when we're discouraged. If you write these down, I'm certain you're going to find a great deal of comfort and application for your life if you will meditate on these. When you're discouraged in your walk with Jesus or in your service for him, first of all, remember the gift of fellowship through Christian friends. God didn't design us to go through this life alone. He designed us to be connected with the body. In fact, you know, Paul had 
Silas and Timothy, Aquila, Priscilla, Luke, and many others who encouraged him. And we have brothers and sisters in this body and outside of this body who encourage us in our walk with the Lord. In fact, the brothers and sisters in this building are, are, are God's design for your sanctification. It's a big part of your sanctification. When Paul wrote back to the Philippians, he said, look, I'm, I'm growing in my walk with the Lord because of you and your prayers and your encouragement to me. He designed us to do this together, not alone, which is one of the reasons, just one of the reasons that home groups are so important. But God has also given us His Holy Spirit and His Word. Paul had a direct word from God, from Jesus, in fact. So do we. We have the Scriptures. Last, God gives us His protection and success. This is not always the case. God, in His sovereignty, allows some of us to die. It was not striking to you a few weeks ago when Sean said in these last 40 minutes that we've been in the Word, 10 people have been arrested, 4 have been tortured, 4 have been executed. And that's true today, and it's true tonight while we're sleeping. All around the world, we, we just have so little conception of it because we're here in America. But you know, when we are called to suffer, God will at that time. Give us the grace that we need. And, and if not, he's going to protect us. He's going to guide us divinely in his will for our lives. We can always trust God no matter what our circumstances are. Paul just needed a word from the Lord at that time. He went on, went, walked right into the face of, of arrest and persecution in Jerusalem. But... At the time, God said, I'm going to protect you here. But, but our encouragement from God is not entirely passive. It's not just that we just remember these things. I mean, we have a role to play. Our responsibility, what's our responsibility when we're discouraged? We find answers in Acts 18, verses 9 to 10. First, we're to do something. The Lord told Paul to go on speaking to the lost. Our temptation when we're down is to let ourselves just do nothing. I mean, not to do anything. It's just to sit there. Don't do that. In the midst of, of, of a time of discouragement and depression, do the right thing. The worst thing that we can do is to sit around and allow ourselves to just wallow. We become so self-focused. And I, I recognize that there are physiological issues that some of us have that make it more difficult than it is for others. But always, always, a very helpful thing when we're struggling with discouragement is to get out and to do something. Tough as it is. My temptation is to sit. The Lord says, get up. And Paul did it. He went and preached to the synagogues. Second, remember something. Remember the promises of God. God's promises to Paul sound very much like his promises to us found all through Scripture. Fear not, I am with you. We have the same blessing that Paul had. And last, see something. God told Paul that he had many people in Corinth. Paul's job was to simply share the gospel, to be faithful, to share the gospel. That's our job as well. 
to look out and see people as God sees them. And to recognize, Paul's temptation was to see this this wicked city full of of jealous Jews and, and godless Gentiles. And to be afraid and to say, I, why, why do I, why, I mean, I just thought Athens was dark. Corinth is even darker than Athens. But God wanted them to see the city full of men and women who desperately needed the gospel. And the Lord said, many of them, Paul, belong to me. You just be faithful. Well, that's a good word to us, isn't it? In life, it's hard enough anyway, but when the gospel is a major part of your life, when it's central to your life, it's going to be tougher. Satan has lost you to Jesus. He's not happy about that. And he certainly does not want anybody else coming to Jesus because of your life. And so he's going to do everything he can to beat you down. And one of his best tools is discouragement. I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought God was doing this. I thought, but I can see that I was all wrong. And it's just not worth it. But First John one, oh, excuse me, First John four four says, "The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world." Satan's coming at us with everything he's got. God's right there, saying, "I've got this. I've got this." If we trust in Him, let's pray.